Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk Colbert. So earlier this week, uh, hit the news the fact that in the Hunter Biden case, the judge that was presiding over that matter disapproved the plea agreement that had been worked out between Biden and the prosecutors. And just by way of background, he was um, charged with some uh, tax evasion type uh, charges and also being in possession of a firearm by one who uses or has used uh, illegal drugs. And uh, those are relatively minor charges. There are felony versions and misdemeanor versions of those offenses. But uh, the interesting thing here is that this was something that was worked out between the parties and was brought before the judge. And the judge uh, basically refused to accept the agreement. And there's reasons why that happens in in, uh, various different contexts. But uh, I want to talk about how agreements are reached, um, how they end up uh, being put into writing and, and the whole process whereby these agreements are proposed to a judge and then the factors that a judge will use in determining whether or not to accept the agreement. Now, sometimes, and there is an element of this in the Biden situation, a judge wants to make sure that there is a complete understanding amongst the parties as to what is actually covered by the agreement. And it's often, probably always, a key feature of any agreement to resolve charges that there's a clear understanding as to what is covered and what is not. Now, it can happen where there are, there's an ongoing investigation or there's different jurisdictions or whatever the case may be that results in a plea agreement covering just certain conduct and specifically, explicitly not addressing other conduct. More often, however, if there is an attempt to resolve a case one of the goals would be to have it encompass everything that is known to the uh, the government that constitutes potential charges and uh, whether or not the agreement is uh, contemplating that it resolves those matters as well. So typically what we see is that a, a number of different layers here. We can have a proposal that a defendant will enter a plea uh, in federal court, it's guilty. Um, it can be no contest in state court, but they don't really do that. In federal court, it's guilty um, to specified charges. And then part of that agreement is that the government is agreeing essentially that there will not be charges pursued in some other area or charges that could have been brought or things that are being dismissed Uh, as part of the agreement. Again, so that going forward, everyone knows that there's finality to uh, this process. Now, the reason this is important is because a judge has a very important role in ensuring that uh, a particular agreement, as it relates to double jeopardy, is adequately covered. In other words, if one believes that they are resolving all potential matters that are known 
to the government investigators at a particular point in time. And then let's say they, uh, somebody gets charged with the additional counts that could have been charged previously. How the agreement addresses those things, again, it's designed to specifically address this concept of double jeopardy. Because if something is, as part of an agreement, dismissed on the record, or if the government states that they're not intending to pursue certain um, potential charges, and that's clear, then they can't in the future if they're silent on those matters. And if it's not covered in the agreement, then there is no double jeopardy claim down the road. But just to remind you, double jeopardy means that one cannot be put twice in jeopardy for the same uh, conduct, generally. There's variations relating uh, to different jurisdictions, and they apply what's called an elements test, which means if all the elements of an offense are covered and and a person is either convicted or acquitted of that specific conduct, then the prosecution doesn't get to try again, essentially is what it is. It then branches off into various subcategories as to why the government may or may not be barred from prosecution of various offenses. So when we talk about elements, what we mean is that a crime and all of its lesser included offenses, if there is a conviction or acquittal specifically relating to that conduct, then that's when double jeopardy kicks in. So let's say someone's charged with doing a particular thing on a particular day and they're acquitted but then the government says, well, we want to charge you with doing that same thing on a different day. Well, they could do that because under the elements test, there would be a different element that the person did something, the difference being on a different date. So see how that works? Um, so par- part of what a judge is doing here is making sure, number one, that there is a complete understanding and that all the things that are covered are adequately addressed and that the parties have talked about what the net effect of the agreement is going to be. But then there's another role that the judge plays in these situations, and that is to basically approve an agreement with a finding that it's in the public's interest to approve. Now, it's a very controversial uh, power that the judge has because it is almost bulletproof when it comes to appeal. Uh, A judge would have to what we call abuse discretion, which is a very deferential standard to to the judge, meaning that the judge would have to get something like completely wacko wrong in order to have that subject to an appellate attack. Um, So you can imagine how very subjective that determination is. There's no formula or mathematical equation or anything that the judge can employ or deploy in order to come to the conclusion that an agreement is appropriate. Um, There are times when a judge may find that uh, the the charging decision is, or the the way that the agreement is working out, does not um, appropriately address the severity of the actual conduct or that it sends the wrong message to others who may commit the same type of offense. And generally what we see in these situations is that if there's nothing that distinguishes a particular case 
for legitimate reasons from what we might imagine to be others that might commit similar conduct, then, um, you know, you just have to look at the bigger picture and whether or not that is something that supports the law in general. You know, is this um, effectively representing what our legislature wanted to happen in these types of situations? So, in federal court, it's a very, very careful process when there is a plea agreement that's reached. It's set forth in, in writing in great detail. Most plea agreements that I've seen in federal court are to sometimes they're as much as 20 pages long because there's a recitation of what's covered and what isn't and the various rights that both parties have. There, is, there are specific facts that are part of every agreement that the parties are agreeing are true, yeah, as well as the waiver of rights that goes along with all that. It's very, very, very detailed. And um, it's done that way by design. And actually, in federal court, they, they do a much more thorough review of all of that information prior to a judge accepting a plea than they do in state court. Now it's still thorough in state court, but uh, that same process is essentially a two-page document on a pre-filled out form. Well, it's a form that gets filled in with uh, information, oftentimes with a pen, you know, uh, right before court, the uh, plea questionnaire and waiver of rights. <clears throat> so when a judge is presented a plea agreement, the judge will review it and again, we're talking about federal court, and we'll check to see that all of the things that are supposed to be there are there, and then also make this overall um, finding as to whether or not it's appropriate. And that's where things can get sticky. So we'll talk about how and why things can get derailed and uh, how in this particular case they absolutely did when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. So one of the difficulties when these these things happen, where a judge makes a determination that he or she does not uh, believe that the plea agreement is appropriate, is that uh, the prosecutors oftentimes uh, do not or cannot disclose every single aspect of an investigation, especially because in doing so, they are making it publicly known. And yes, of course, this is a very public case, but every case is one where things that are said in open court become part of the public record on the case. So you can probably imagine the uh, complexities that are involved in some investigations where the government simply cannot, because of confidential informants or because of, you know, national defense secrets and things like that, where they can't explicitly state every single aspect of why they um, are exercising their judgment in a particular way. So to some extent, a judge is supposed to, you know, trust the prosecutors that they have um, considered all aspects of things without having to give a complete and full um, recitation of everything that went into that. 
But there has to be some showing, you know, really to demonstrate that this isn't a result of negligence or special treatment or, um, and when I say negligence, like, you know, did, did the prosecutor just get lazy, you know, in these types of situations, or did the defense lawyer bamboozle the prosecutor in some way to work out a deal that's probably not appropriate, you know, those types of things. So to the extent that a judge is supposed to factor everything in, and there's also a general rule that judges are supposed to know everything be provided with all of the details of um, you know what a case is all about. We see that all the time where, sure, charges are dismissed, um, and sure, there's conduct that wasn't charged, and the, the government exercises its discretion in not doing so, but the judge is still entitled and, and really should know what all that conduct really was, this, this general principle that a judge should know everything that is known to all parties. Um, and that's basically because uh, it's only, that's in the interest of fairness to both sides, that uh, complete information is provided. So when we have these scenarios where for various reasons, the government, the prosecutors are unable to disclose everything that should be known because of a, the status of an investigation and so on, um, a judge is often put in a very difficult position because, again, the judge has to consider what effect this has on justice in general. When we see a situation, certain certain fact scenario presented to the court, is this within the confines of what the public would accept as appropriate? So... You can see why that can be something that is, is very difficult to quantify in any meaningful way. Now, oftentimes when there's a glitch in an agreement, um, more often than not, the judge is really saying, why don't you go back and try again? Give it another chance. See if you can come up with something <laughs> that addresses different concerns. And I've had that happen to me many times where we have an agreement and we present it to a judge and the judge says, well, I'm really not able to find that this is in the public's interest unless you can give me more. Or, you know, perhaps you should go back to the drawing table and try again, that kind of thing. Um, and, and that's what, you know, when these things arise, it almost always works out in such a way that what the judge is really doing is saying, you know, go back and try again. Now, sometimes these agreements fall into place at the very last minute, and that presents an even greater challenge to a judge because if there's a jury ready to go, waiting to go, and all of a sudden there is this change of position and the parties uh, want to propose something to the judge, the issue then becomes, okay, if the judge decides this is not an appropriate agreement and rejects or and disapproves, I guess I should say, the plea agreement, well, then it, then it goes to trial, like immediately after that is the thing. So there's lots of things that are worked into the process to try and avoid that potential dilemma, such as deadlines to accept agreements um, or um, dates that are 
that precede the trial, whereby the parties and the judge will meet to discuss if there is an agreement and, and if not, where the progress is on there being a potential agreement in order to avoid that situation. But it does happen. And oftentimes, one of the things that just simply cannot be avoided, and I know that this is one of the things that people criticize pretty frequently about the justice system, is that it seems to drag on and then all of a sudden things happen in a split second, you know, type thing. But it's partly because the actual litigation of any case, the calling of witnesses, the presentation of evidence causes the prosecution in particular, but it certainly also applies to the defense, causes a, a, a much closer and detailed examination of how the evidence will play out. And, be, and because of the fact that trial preparation, you know, almost has to happen closer in time to trial than, you know, instead of months away, it's usually days before a trial occurs. Sometimes information will come out that was not in the discovery, was not in any other statements, that was not uh, explicitly known to anyone when it really comes down to that final preparation process. And sometimes, just because of the complexity of cases and the fact that often we're dealing with many, many, many witnesses that uh, are going to be called in a particular case, you know, it can be the day before, the night before, or the morning of the beginning of a trial where something comes to light that makes a difference. And it's just part of the process. I mean, it, I guess it would be nice if all of that occurred months before a trial were to commence, but the reality is that it, it just doesn't because, uh, you know, it's just the way the process works. Um, I know judges often try to uh, force prosecutors to have all of their ducks in a row and everything figured out well in advance of trial. But again, the reality is that just that process of actually interviewing and, and working out the finer points um, just doesn't happen until close to trial. Now, the other thing to remember is that uh, statistically speaking, the majority, the vast majority of all cases that are charged definitely in federal court, but it's also true in state court, don't go to trial for various reasons, um, because there are agreements that are reached, usually. So, you know, if a prosecutor were required to fully prepare for every single case uh, and not factoring in the great likelihood that a case will probably not go to trial, um, you know, it would be an insurmountable task. Now, the defense normally has the, I'm not going to say the luxury, but the uh, ability, let's say, to get ahead of that process, mostly because when you're working with someone charged with an offense, you have their help and their input. You know, that person was there, uh, presumably, maybe, possibly, and uh, can assist in orienting uh, the lawyer, the lawyers in that process. The prosecution doesn't have that necessarily. I mean, they'll have, they could have alleged victims or other eyewitnesses and things like that. But remember, it's their burden of proof. They have to produce the evidence. They have to 
meet the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and how all of those uh, intersecting pieces come together can often be something that once the process is uh, on its final approach, let's say, things come to light. So I think sometimes judges don't understand that or they don't appreciate it fully when we have, uh, you know, last minute things, last minute developments in cases. Um, and again, a judge, you know, is going to want to control the calendar as much as possible because if nothing else, one of the judge's greatest responsibilities in any courtroom is time management. Let's face it, that's really kind of essential to the process working is making sure that courtroom time, which is very valuable and scarce at times, is utilized effectively. So uh, we'll be right back after these messages. You know, I've had an idea for many years that one way that we could kind of reset the system and get back to um, the way it was originally designed to work, believe it or not, and hear me out, is if cases were required to go to trial, that there wasn't a choice <laughs> to enter into plea agreements. I know, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but um, all of the things that happen at a trial are there for very good reasons. And part of that is to force the government to um, be able to prove its case. And as we said in the last segment, and as you probably know, uh, nowadays the vast majority of cases resolve without a trial. And it often feels like there's an expectation. And this is, this is the point that I'm addressing here. An expectation that one will not go to trial. Now, they say all the things in court that you know you'd, you'd hope to hear, such as you have a right to a trial. You can have your right to remain silent, your right to a lawyer, your right to call witnesses, your right to confront witnesses, all these things. And, and they say them because they have to. But in reality, there's an underlying message, which is, you know, don't do those things because you're going to make it more difficult. And the system has evolved to the point where it cannot accommodate trials the way that it used to. Now, granted, we have a lot more cases charged than we did in the past, One for one reason, sheer population growth. And one might also say that there are trends in, you know, uh, crimes being committed. Perhaps there are more offenses being committed today than there were 50 years ago. But, you know, generally speaking, that really isn't true. Um, we just have evolved to the point where prosecutors can charge anything and everything they want with a little bit um, less precision than is ideal. And I'm not, you know, criticizing prosecutors for doing this. It's just the nature of of what happens. But, you know, I think that there's this philosophy out there that if anyone anywhere does anything that is potentially against the law, that every single one of those people should be convicted of something in order to have a society that is orderly and lawful and, and all that. And yes, that's a very nice idea, I suppose. 
But in the grand scheme of things, uh, if we th- those are decisions made by prosecutors, not by anybody else, um, as far as who gets charged with what. Judges have an extremely limited role in controlling any of that, and certainly the defense has utterly no role <laughs> in that. So that um, you know the the caseload is dictated by those who make the allegations. And if every single thing uh, is done in such a way so that it, you know, there's an attempt to convict everyone of everything, there is no prioritization. There's no ability to devote resources towards the more important crimes that are out there, the more significant ones. Now, am I saying that, you know, minor offense offenders should get a pass? No, I'm not. But we have simultaneously increased the caseload as well as we're we're putting all of our resources into basically manufacturing of pleas, plea agreements, churning them out like they're widgets. And if we were to do it right, we would have far more resources devoted to this process than we have right now. So you see, the fewer cases that go to trial, the less of a need there is perceived for the number of judges or the number of prosecutors, the number of courtrooms, and so on. Um, We keep pouring lots of money into law enforcement to increase the technology and the number of personnel. And we hear prosecutors complain constantly that they don't have enough resources to prosecute all the crimes that they want to. But in order to accommodate all that and still protect our very important rights to not have this be something which is arbitrary, we need a lot more resources than what we have. And if we had that ability, and if there was basically the default position was everything goes to trial, I I happen to believe that that would reset the process and, and fix things. Now, I know that's kind of outlandish, and I know it's kind of, you know, how on earth would you ever do that? But I do think that if judges, uh, you know, had a philosophy, and some do, some don't, some do, though, that treat every case that's before you as though it is a trial and just assume there is no plea agreement Everybody needs to be ready to go. <clears throat> when they say they're ready to go, we would have we would have a lot less of these last minute things, because the the last minute syndrome that occurs is almost exclusively driven by the fact that so many cases don't go to trial, and when they do, that's when that final preparation occurs. Now, perhaps you can detect a tone here that I'm getting at, and that is that. When prosecutors make that charging decision, if it's built into the process that they know 95% of cases don't go to trial, number one, they don't have to be as careful with what they charge and how they charge it. Number two, they don't have to do that thorough investigation preparation that occurs when it turns out it's a case that is going to trial until the last minute. They would have to put a lot more effort into chasing down all these different aspects of it earlier in the process. And also it basically um, you know, makes it so it's a chaotic time management uh, effort that occurs. 
um, guessing which cases will and which ones won't go to trial. And I, you know, I know prosecutors. I talk to them all the time. And there are certain cases that when they charge, they just they know, hey, this is going to go to trial. This is going to go to trial. So they work that into the process. But those are rare cases. Mostly they're dealing with tons and tons and tons and tons of other smaller little stuff. So um, going through all of that, I'm sure that many judges imagine that when prosecutors make these charging decisions that all of this very detailed, high-quality investigative work has already occurred. And, you know, maybe it should. One of the reasons that we're we're seeing more of this become a problem over the years is, and now I am going to blame the legislature <laughs> for a couple of things, that is that we've practically eliminated um, the process of a preliminary hearing having any significance. What I mean by that is that, you know, decades ago, hearsay wasn't admissible. Um, they would have to call, the prosecutor would have to call actual witnesses, actual alleged victims of crime, and, uh, you know, kind of hit all the high points on the case. They didn't have to present everything. But the the real actual people involved would have to testify. And that gave prosecutors, I remember, you know, back in the day, um, you know, every prosecutor I knew actually appreciated the opportunity to get some live testimony at a preliminary hearing in order to get a feel for what the case is all about, kind of explore some of the issues early on. And a lot of times, having that opportunity early in the process better educated the prosecutor on how this would pan out later. Well, the the lawmakers have eliminated so many aspects of what used to be a meaningful preliminary hearing. And if you don't already know this, I'll tell you that nowadays they can call a summary witness who is generally a law enforcement officer. I mean, the joke goes that they could call the janitor in the hallway if they wanted to, and technically that's true, somebody who's familiar with the investigation and can, you know, repeat hearsay statements. They can do make conclusory um, you know, broad sweeping opinion type statements. There's very little that uh, is done to try and have these things be accurately um, put forth other than whatever investigative work occurred that resulted in the charges coming out. So the net effect is that since preliminary hearings are utterly meaningless now to to the court to the parties and everything else um you know it's kind of like putting off that process of really vetting the information until when maybe trial <laughs> you know that that might be the first time that somebody actually testifies about what happened and that's really one of the essential components of our justice system is that we have the actual people that are truly involved all right, time for another break. We'll be right back. So there's another aspect of all this I want to address, and that is this concept of acceptance of responsibility. And that sounds like a really nice concept, right? That somebody should be given the opportunity to say they're sorry and that they did wrong and that, uh, you know, basically to beg for mercy, <laughs> so to speak. But um, 
that is a concept that was not part of the original idea as to how these conflicts should be resolved. And it sort of emerged slowly and then gained more momentum. And now it becomes, in the modern era, a centerpiece of nearly every case that whether someone, quote-unquote, accepts responsibility um, or not becomes a critical factor. And, and it's it's logical that if someone truly is remorseful and sorry that, you know, they should be given the chance to say so, and that should be considered. I get that. But it becomes an expectation that, in my opinion, interferes with this whole trial process. Now, it's, it's most um, profoundly evident in the federal system, because... As you may know, uh, things in federal court are driven by what we call sentencing guidelines. Now, guidelines are not mandatory. They haven't been since the case of United States versus Booker, uh, or Booker versus United States, um, to the extent that guidelines before that case were mandatory. Judges had to calculate a range and there's factors that may make it go up or down, aggravating, mitigating, and it was very mathematical. Now we still do these guidelines calculations, but they're now rather than mandatory, they're advisory, meaning that you know a judge can depart from them. But part of that calculus is still if somebody accepts responsibility, they actually get point reductions in their um, guideline calculations. So there's a reward <laughs> built in to entering into a plea agreement. And it sounds kind of odd that there would be, you know, this carrot that's out there dangling in front of somebody that, um, you know, basically one can give up fighting a case and get a reward, so to speak. Now, Many, many times it doesn't matter because the power to make somebody look bad is still well within the sphere of influence of the prosecutor regardless of that. And boy, countless times I can tell you in court somebody says, well, they say they accept responsibility, but do they really type thing, you know? But what this does is if that becomes something that is you know, a critical aspect of what the ultimate outcome is. And if the norm is that people come in and waive all their rights and don't fight, don't put the government to their proof, they don't um, exercise the rights that they're given and instead say, I want a lesser sentence in order to forego all of that, then those that really do want to, to have their day in court, they want to have their trial, they are deemed to be not accepting responsibility. And the net impact of that, now in federal court, some people can still get their acceptance points by going to trial, but they're at grave risk of not getting that um, consideration. In state court, although we don't have a mathematical way of determining it, there's a similar process whereby if somebody 
makes the case go to trial because they have that right. And if they put the government to their burden of proof, which, again, they have that right, constitutional right, they are punished uh, if they're found guilty. There is no doubt about it. And so it's it's the wielding of this power that um, has become very skewed towards towards the prosecution in this modern era, where if somebody's not going to basically do exactly what the prosecutor thinks they should do, then they're going to suffer consequences. And that sounds terrible, but it's the reality. And I'm sure that most, if not all, prosecutors would disagree with the way I'm wording this, and, you know, they're perfectly entitled to do that. But I'm talking about the bigger picture and how this has an impact on the functioning of our system. Add to that the fact that um, it, it, if it becomes much more rare that a case goes to trial, if it becomes the outlier, the, the uncommon path that's followed, that means there are fewer and fewer prosecutors out there that have significant trial experience. There are fewer and fewer defense lawyers that have significant trial experience and fewer and fewer judges that have significant experience presiding over trials. Now, they, they've all done it, but if the frequency of that occurring is something that is a rarity, uh, I think you can see that that also contributes to something that has a very negative impact on our society. And I deal with clients constantly, all the time, who are left with the impression that the prosecutor is making all the decisions as to what's going to happen in a particular person's life. And trust me, you know, in their office, everybody is a file. It's a, it's a folder, you know, with a name on it. And it's just hard. I'm not saying that, you know, it's a personality flaw or anything like that. It's just the nature of the system. It's hard to remember that, you know, sometimes good people make mistakes. Sometimes good people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or sometimes somebody has a lapse of judgment. And I've said this before, but I'll just repeat it. The vast majority of cases that we see in court are either the result of somebody having a mental health problem or a substance abuse problem. Uh, The number of people that are truly bad, that want to do bad things for the sake of doing bad things, is is relatively minimal. Our courts are clogged, uh, jam-packed with people who make bad decisions because they're not adequately addressing their own you know, psychological or medical needs. Um, and, you know, human beings are flawed and people make poor choices sometimes. You know, there's a saying that you can be a 100% excellent person every day of your life, but the one day that you're not could be the day that defines you forever. And that's true. Um, so, I know it's a bit of a far-fetched idea, but I'm just I'm trying to be very philosophical here and uh, contemplative. Sorry if it's bringing you down on this nice Saturday morning, but anyway, th- there are ways 
there are ways that we can, you know, short of requiring every single case go to trial, which I know probably will, know it, will never happen. But, um, yeah, I mean, we have to have those resources. And I know resources are always hard to come by. Everybody, every piece of government needs more funding than what we have. And when people say we need more to do these things, well, that naturally means the government needs to raise more funds. And how do you do that? Well, there's a variety of ways, but the first thing that comes to mind is taxes, right? So when we have these needs out there and when we know they're not being addressed, the difficulty is that in order to try and meet those needs, and again, the justice system is just one small piece, well, maybe it's not a small piece, but it's a piece of government functioning. And, you know, there there's the DNR, there's the DOT, there's all the different agencies that need funding. They need to do their programs and they need to have adequate uh, support, personnel, pay, all that stuff. And justice is just part of that. But when uh, there's a need there, the natural fear is that, well, we're going to end up having to raise taxes then. Um, yes and no. I mean, we kind of got ourselves painted into a corner here because of this trend to make it so um, we as a society place a greater value on people waiving their rights than exercising them. And we have to find a way to remedy that. So, well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the show. You can tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, it's legal defense. We'll see you next week.